Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. A reluctant king and Prince Edward sign the provisions. After his first fury at being forced to sign them, Prince Edward wavers a little bit. For a short period of time, he follows Simon. He's, he's caught by that, that charisma, that charm. He's fascinated by his ideas. And he agrees with Simon. If the king must answer to the wrongs of, their t- of his tenants, that is, the barons, then the barons must answer to the wrongs of their tenants, the freemen. If we are going to do that, it must cover everybody. And Prince, Prince Edward agrees. Now, Edward was impatient with his father and his father's foreign advisors. He was glad to see them go. But he wants more power. Like Henry II's sons, Edward wants some of his father's power. But Edward is going to be one of England's more complex and ruthless kings. His motivations are never simple, and so we're never quite sure where he's coming from. It's fairly clear Simon de Montfort fascinated him, but Edward would never willingly give up even an ounce of power. He listens to both sides and then begins to pull the people to him that are disaffected from his father and from Simon. He's creating a third party, so to speak. Now, King Henry is not laying down under this either. He, does, he works a deal with the King of France. He gives the King of France Gascony, his last piece of France, in return for money and influence with the Pope. And in 1261, Henry renounced the Oxford provisions. And he receives a special papal bull absolving him from his oath. The Pope says, you don't, you're not accountable for, for making that promise. First, Pope Alexander IV and then Urban IV excuse Henry from those oaths. A backlash is also forming among the nobles. Changes came too fast and went too far for a lot of them. We humans like our change slow. We get very uncomfortable when change comes too fast. So now the papal bull gives the, the, the ones who are uncomfortable permission and reason to go back on Henry, Henry's side. Well, if the Pope says this wasn't right, then obviously we should go back. Turmoil sets in throughout the country. Henry starts to relieve the barons' officials all over the country. Some of them refuse to give up. 
and they are besieged in their own fortresses. Henry has used that money from the French king to hire mercenaries. So there are mercenary forces besieging Englishmen in their own castles. The shires are also in turmoil. They don't know what laws to follow. Some of them keep to the provisions of Oxford and defy the royal sheriffs. Others revert to the original laws. So from shire to shire now you have different laws in effect. Henry II, who established that common law, was doing somersaults in his grave. Simon de Montfort demands the reinstatement of the provisions of Oxford. But Simon makes things worse. He scares off even some of the moderates because he's gone even farther with his thoughts. He doesn't just want everyone in the hierarchy accountable. He now says that the common people have the same right of representation as the nobles do. Government is a common enterprise. If it is a community of the realm, the common people have an equal role to play. It's an amazing leap in thought. He even writes public letters to the citizens of London, the church and freemen in the shires. He acknowledges their political power, their right to a say in government. And it scares the tar out of a lot of people. If it was too far before, it's way too far, even for some moderates. Many of the people are for him, but not all. It's too far for some of them, too. They're not ready. The nobles are definitely divided. Some think he's the ultimate crusader for justice and for right. Others think he's Caesar, going to take over and strip us of our rights. Between 1263 and 1265, civil war breaks out across the country. By the end of 1263, Simon and his followers have London, then they lose it, and most of southeast, southeastern England. King Henry needs more mercenaries, and he needs money to buy them. They don't come cheap. And so Henry's queen, Eleanor, pawns some of her jewels, her royal jewels, to the Knights Templar. You loan us some money based on my jewels. Prince Edward either talks his way in or breaks into the Knights Templar temple, breaks open the treasure chests, and takes the jewels back and anything else that was in the treasure chests. So now the royal family can buy more mercenaries if they can find anybody willing to take the jewels in pawn again, which they probably couldn't. And he's made formidable enemies. The Knights Templar are not good enemies to have. And more immediately, he's got a problem because the mayor of London and the leading citizens of London are outraged by this act. They may not agree, they may not believe everything Simon de Montfort says, but he hasn't stolen any jewels. And so the people demonstrate in the streets against the royal family. Now, Queen Eleanor was never a popular queen. They were taxed personally, the people of London were taxed personally for that very expensive court of hers, of foreigners no less. And so 
anytime she goes out, somebody's usually hollering at her. But with these demonstrations, she takes fright, and she and her ladies decide they need to get out of London. And so they get on a barge to go down the Thames. People standing on London Bridge pelt her and her ladies with sheep bones and rotten eggs and manure from a variety of sources. The queen, now a little stinky, takes refuge in St. Paul's Cathedral. Prince Edward is furious and he vows revenge on the people of London. The Civil War heats up. More of the people of the country are going to Simon's side. The two forces meet in, the ba in a battle in the Sussex Downs in a place near Lewis, L-E-W-E-S, on 14 May, 1264. Simon came to the battle on a cart. He had broken his leg in a riding accident just a few days before. The king's forces far outnumber the rebels. In addition to mercenaries, King Henry had called in troops from Ireland and Scotland and Wales based on those treaties that he had signed. Among the Scottish mercenaries is the father of the future king, Robert the Bruce. The rebels are short of cavalry and experience. One whole wing is untested Londoners. Some of the more experienced nobles had left Simon and returned to the king's side. For at least four of them, the decision was devastating. Father will face son across the battle lines. Several of the family, the, the uh, leaders of the realm are on both sides. And several of the followers on Simon's side carry names that appeared on the Magna Carta. It's a horrible split with the nobility facing each other. Simon is a talented and experienced general. He contacts local men of Sussex. He wants them to be guides and scouts for him across those fens and swamps. The men of Sussex flock to Simon. Their Earl de Warren is a king's man. But for the first time since the Norman invasion, the people are choosing which side they will support. With the Sussex guides, the rebels pull an all-night march to take the high ground outside Lewis. On the morning of the battle, Simon tells his men they're fighting for the kingdom of England and for the honor of God. Simon's men called themselves the army of God which is another of those very eerie parallels to the civil wars in the mid-1600s. We'll cover that in classes 7 and 8. Simon orders his men to lie face down on the ground with their arms spread out to pray. And when they stand up, they put surcoats over their armor. And on the front and the back are the big white crosses of the Crusaders. Now the cross serves two purposes. One, it's a very powerful image, of course. But two, remember they're facing their own. The people facing them speak the same language. They look the same. They dress the same. These are friends. And so the white cross on the front and back 
identifies friend from foe so you know who to fight and who not to fight. It's a very critical issue. Even in modern warfare today, friend and foe identification is a crucial element, especially in a civil war. Prince Edward commands one of the royal flanks. He is face to face with that wing of Londoners. And he has vowed revenge for his mother's poop pelting. And here they are right in front of him. He's overconfident and he's inexperienced. Prince Edward launches an all-out attack, a charge on the Londoners. Well, these people have never fought before in their lives. They break and run. And Edward orders his people to chase them. And so they go tearing across the countryside, cutting the Londoners down as they run from them. What he also does is leave that side of the royal army unprotected. When he has satisfied his revenge and he comes back, the battle is over. It was a rout but not the one he expected. The royals have lost. King Henry has taken refuge in the abbey at Lewis. All of his commanders are either dead or captured. Prince Edward becomes a hostage for the king's good conduct. If I were Edward, I would have been very worried. Henry is not a man whose good conduct you can count on. But the next 18 months are all the implementation of the rebels' ideas. For 18 months, England is almost a republic, and it's 1264. The new rules say Parliament must be called three times a year now, not just when the king wants it, but three times a year regardless. Now, the last time Parliament met, King Henry got in big trouble. So now King Henry says, I'm leaving the country. You won't be able to call a Parliament. And Simon answers, go. If you're here or not, we're having a Parliament. Can you imagine 1264 telling a king he's no longer necessary? So Henry stays. He's not leaving the country under these conditions. And now more than nobles are called to Parliament. Two knights of the shire, that is two large landowners from each shire, elected by their own people, not by outsiders, not selected by the barons, will represent the shire. And two burgesses from each of the chartered towns, these are tradesmen and merchants from the large chartered towns of Lincoln and York and London, will all sit in Parliament as equals to the barons. For the first time in history, common men, unlanded men, will sit shoulder to shoulder with nobles, with the large landowners. At the same time, they will be looking at the same issues of government. Not even in Greek time did unlanded men sit side by side with landed men. It's not the House of Commons, but it's close. For the 12th, 1200s, very close. 
And this parliament is called the Great Parliament, not for what it achieved, but for the precedent that it set. Simon de Montfort is called the father of parliament. One modern historian, he's got a book on your list, said the new parliament introduced the union between patriotism and insubordination. For anyone who has seen the House of, Par of Commons in operation will understand exactly what that phrase means. They have it down to a science. Simon releases Prince Edward conditionally. He swears an oath to be good and stay within Simon's control. Now, you know and I know who we're talking about here. It does not sound like a real smart thing to do, and it wasn't. Edward's supporters get word to him. They have troops nearby. On 20 May 1264, he escapes. Neither Henry nor Edward ever seemed to think they had to keep their word, whether it was forced or given freely. Personally, by this time, I don't know why anybody asked them to promise anything, but they did. King Henry is pretty useless by now, but Edward serves as a strong rallying point for the, for the uh, royalist forces. An army forms around him. And Edward has learned from the Battle of Lewis. He will no longer let his passions rule. Edward takes command of the king's troops. He captures part of the rebel army in Gloucester. He surprises another army outside Kenilworth. The younger Simon, the son of our Earl, had been gathering troops to bring to his father. Edward surprises them and takes them all. The younger Simon escapes by swimming across the lake. But two-thirds of the rebel army are now gone. Simon and a much smaller rebel group is, is camped outside the Abbey of Evesham. Edward marches on the abbey under the de Montfort Baron, uh, banners that he captured at Kenilworth and he gets too close before they identify him. They think he's the younger Simon coming with the troops. When they finally realize he's Edward, Harold rushes in to tell Simon, it's Edward, it's not your son. And Simon answers, God have mercy on our souls for our bodies are theirs. They are massively outnumbered and unready. The Battle of Evesham is more a massacre than a battle. Son Henry de Montfort dies in front of his father. Guy de Montfort is wounded, is captured. He will later escape to France. The knights pledged to Simon's protection are all killed. Simon is unhorsed and killed. Edward, who never cared much about chivalry, looses his knights. Thirty Rebel knights, already wounded and on the ground and helpless, are killed. Some are mutilated so badly they are never identified. The royalist forces trampled them into the ground with their war horses. You couldn't even, there wasn't even enough of their surcoats to identify who they were. 
Simon's head, his hands, his feet, and other body parts are cut off. Later, his hands, feet, and head are sent to different cities as proof he's dead and as a warning to other rebels. The monks at Evesham Abbey take his torso, that's all that's left, and bury it under the stones of the chapel. They don't identify where because they know it'll be dug up and further mutilated. King Henry and Prince Edward will punish the abbey severely for doing so. Thousands of people over the next couple of years make pilgrimage to Evesham. There are stories of cures and miracles. Songs break out in every tavern about Simon, his courage, and his vision. Anyone, anyone associated with Simon is arrested and disinherited. Land is taken from them. Nearly half the nobility is either dead or disinherited, driven from their lands. It's a sad repeat of the Norman invasion. Pope Clement removes the four bishops who traveled with Simon's army from office. They're defrocked. King Henry demands that the mayor and the leading citizens of London come to him, and he promises them safe passage, you know, safe conduct. They come. He arrests them anyway. He takes their land and punishes the city of London. It is fined, and they lose a large number of their charter rights over the next couple of years. It looks like the war will continue. And so Simon's wounded and captive knights begin to disappear across England. Monks and the common people are helping them escape and hide, going into either safety or exile across the sea. There were other rebels who had not made it to Evesham. They also go into hiding or into exile. Many of them gather at Kenilworth Castle. Others take refuge on the Isle of Ely. And you remember the Isle of Ely. That's where Hereford the Wake held off William the Conqueror for so long. It's in the Fens of Anglia, East Anglia. Edward lay siege to Kenilworth Castle. For five months in 1266, the besiegers pounded the walls. Nine catapults sent stones against the walls and dead animals into the keep. It is medieval biological warfare. You send dead animals into the keep hoping they will spoil food, spoil water, and spread disease. It worked. There were a number of diseases running rampant among the besiegers. The besiegers gathered up any stones that made it inside the keep and threw them back. They had a couple of catapults too. And so they're exchanging rocks. During part of the assaults, so many stones were catapulted, they were colliding in midair. <laughs> yes, it is. It is true. It is a documented fact. The Pope sends his legate to try to bring peace. The country is beggared. The defenders refuse. They're not ready to give up yet. They send the royal herald back to Prince Edward and the legate, minus a hand. 
the hand he had used to throw the peace treaty at the rebel leaders. He came in rather insolent. Things are really rough enough, violent enough, vicious enough, that they cut his hand off and sent him back without his hand and their refusal. The legate excommunicated them. He stands before the gates and he excommunicates solemnly the besiegers. The besiegers inside Kenilworth hold a mock excommunication on the walls. They excommunicate the legate and Prince Edward. There is nothing as vicious as a civil war. But over the dreary months, even Edward's bloodlust cools and his father relents. The kingdom is bankrupt. The people are sullen and uncooperative. They can't afford more vengeance. By December 1266, the defenders of Kenilworth use up all their fuel and all their food. They are freezing and starving to death. Edward offers terms. They're, they're strict, but for Edward, probably, he thought they were lenient. Kenilworth's commander would be imprisoned at Edward's desire, no more than a year, he promised. And he would pay seven years' worth of income on his land. The common soldiers would be allowed to go free. All of the remaining knights and nobles would pay five years combined income on their land. The dictum to Kenilworth offers the same deal to all Simon de Montfort's followers. Depending on their involvement, they will pay between one and seven years total income on their lands, and then their lands will be theirs again, free and clear. It is poverty for a number of years, but it does put the country back on its feet. It puts the nobles back on their land. It puts the farmers and the yeomen back farming. The rubbles and the fens of Ely hold out longer. It's harder to control access to swamplands and fens. And it's easier to get food and <coughs> murky water anyway. But on 11 July 1267, the men at Ely finally accept the Kenilworth offer as well. Simon's, son of Simon's sons, of course, do not get the offer. Simon's widow Prince Henry's sister Eleanor and her younger children had already escaped to France. Henry died at Evesham. Simon and Guy join her in France. King Henry III is 60 and beginning to suffer from dementia. The 26-year-old Prince Edward is in control of the country. Edward's victory over Simon at Evesham and over the rebels at Kenilworth Castle in Ely does not stop the reforms. For all his violence, Edward is a smart man, and he liked some of Simon's ideas. His opposition was personal. He did not want anyone else telling him what to do. We all know people like that. Some of you may be like that. In 1267, at the Parliament of Marlborough, Edward put some of the provisions of Oxford into statute. He is making them the law of the land. He also reaffirmed the Magna Carta with one interesting Simon de Montfort-like addition. Chapter 5 of the Statute of Marlborough says, The Great Charter shall be observed in all the articles as well, 
in such as pertain to the king as to others. The barons are now accountable too. The point they broke with Simon over, that they would be accountable to their tenants as the king was accountable to them, is now the law of the land. Simon de Montfort left no heirs, direct heirs to history. Simon and his sons, Simon and Amari, died fighting in France. Henry died, of course, at Evesham. Guy died in Sicily, ironically fighting for the Pope. Daughter Eleanor married Prince Llewellyn of Wales. She died in childbirth. Her daughter was a captive of King Edward I. He puts her in a convent to be raised and forces her to be a nun when she grows up. And so there are no direct descendants. There are cousins. There will be more earls of Leicester, but no, none direct descendants of Simon de Montfort. Historians puzzle over Simon. British historians in particular have trouble because he's so improbably a voice for the people. He's wealthy. Um, he has very little con, you know, um, communication with them, and yet he is so fervently for their participation. The British do not have the founding fathers we have. We have that whole group of people who are equally improbable. And so we have a little less trouble understanding someone who can walk that far from his background. And so when you read British history, they talk about Simon a lot. And some of them are very pro-Simon. They just celebrate what he did. Others say, yeah, but you know, he was, um, he was arrogant and he, uh, he was a little dictatorial. He probably would have been a tyrant had he lived. Well, you know, I might be a tyrant if I lived to be 110, but the odds are I'm not going to, so you can't really say that. But you see a lot of that really um, difficulty in some English historians trying to put together his background with his actions. But I really think he fits a Mark Twain quote beautifully, for, at least for us. Mark Twain once said, truth is stranger than fiction. But it is because fiction is obliged to stick to the possibilities. Truth is not. <laughs> okay, next week, ladies and gentlemen, the Black Plague arrives. We have a peasant's revolt, a royal coup. And in our spare time, the English army will invade France for a change. <laughs> See you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. 
Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.